Hello and welcome to the Veterinary Secrets Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Jones and this is episode 56. In today's episode, I'm going to be telling you about the FDA investigating a connection between dog food and heart disease. Glaucoma in dogs and cats, what is it? Plus a new treatment. Plus my thoughts on raw food for dogs and cats. Now Veterinary Secrets is on iTunes. Just go to iTunes and search for Veterinary Secrets. We're also on Stitcher. You can download the Stitcher app and search for Veterinary Secrets. I would definitely appreciate it if you would subscribe to my podcast and leave a review. You can do so on iTunes or Stitcher. Questions or comments, feel free to post a comment on my blog at veterinarysecrets.com forward slash blog, or you can send me an email to podcast at veterinarysecrets.com. Now let's get right into today's podcast. Well, currently the FDA is investigating a potential connection between diet and cases of canine heart disease. This comes directly from the FDA website. I'm going to talk specifically about what they posted and then give you some of my thoughts and comments. So this was posted July 2nd. The US FDA is alerting pet owners and veterinary professionals about reports of canine-delated cardiomyopathy, or DCM, in dogs, eating certain pet foods containing peas, lentils, other legume seeds, or potatoes as main ingredients. These reports are unusual because DCM is occurring in breeds not typically genetically prone to the disease. The FDA's Center for Veterinary Medicine and Veterinary Laboratory Investigation and Response Network is investigating this potential association. Canine DCM is a disease of the dog's heart muscle and results in an enlarged heart. As the heart and its chambers become dilated, it becomes harder for the heart to pump. Heart valves may leak, leading up to buildup of fluids in the chest and abdomen. DCM often results in congestive heart failure. Heart function may improve in cases that are not linked to genetics with appropriate veterinary treatment and dietary modification. That's taurine if caught early. The underlying cause of DCM is not truly known, but it's thought to have a genetic component. Breeds that are typically more frequently associated with DCM include large and giant breeds such as Great Danes, Boxers, Newfies, Irish Wolfhounds, St. Bernards, and Doberman Pinchers. It's less common in the small and medium breeds except for American and English Cocker Spaniels. Um, However, the cases that have been reported to the FDA have included three Golden Retrievers, three Lab Retrievers, a Whippet, Shih Tzu, Bulldog, miniature schnauzers as well as mixed breeds. Diets and cases reported the FDA frequently list potatoes or multiple legumes such as peas, lentils, other pulses, and their protein, starch, and fiber derivatives early in the ingredient list, indicating they're in the main ingredients. Early reports from veterinary cardiology community indicates that the dogs consistently ate these foods as their primary source of nutrition for time periods ranging from months to years. High levels of legumes or peas appear to be more common in diets labeled as grain-free, but it's not yet known how these ingredients are linked to cases of DCM. Changes in diet, especially for dogs with DCM, should be made in consultation with your licensed veterinarian. In the reports the FDA has received, some of the dogs showed signs of heart disease, including decreased energy, cough, difficulty breathing, and episodes of collapse. Medical records for four atypical cases include three golden retrievers, one lab retriever, show that these dogs had low blood levels of the amino acid taurine. Taurine deficiency is well documented as as potentially leading or causing DCM. The laboratory retriever with low whole blood taurine levels is recovering with veterinary treatment, including taurine supplementation and a diet change. 
Four other cases of DCM and atypical breeds, including a miniature Schnauzer, a Shih Tzu, two Lab Retrievers, had normal blood taurine levels. DA is con in continuing to work with board-certified veterinary cardiologists and veterinary nutritionists to better understand the clinical presentation of these dogs. The agency has also been in contact with pet, pet food manufacturers to discuss these reports and to help further the investigation. The FDA encourages pet owners and veterinary professionals to report cases of DCM in their dogs as suspected of having a link to diet, and they've got a specific you know, link to an electronic safety reporting portal, or you can also call the FDA's consumer complaint coordinators. So my sort of general thoughts on this, yes, it, yeah, I'm glad the FDA is taking something serious and investigating it, especially if there's a link to DCM or this type of heart disease, dilated cardiomyopathy, but they've only highlighted eight cases here, you know, out of you know 75 million dogs, for instance, in the United States. So it's a, it's a teeny, teeny fraction of a per percent. Yes, it appears unusual to see it in some of these, you know, small mix and medium breeds, the small breed dogs, very unusual. Once again, we're just dealing with a small, small number. I'm sort of somewhat hardened, heartened to know that for the, half the cases they reported on were linked to taurine, which is a specific amino acid. Perhaps, you know, I'm sort of postulating, maybe there's some type of link where these dogs, when they're fed these diets, they can't absorb enough taurine properly. Dogs don't need to ingest taurine. They can actually manufacture it for some of the other amino Amino acids that they absorb when they eat animal protein when they eat protein but in some cases some dogs can't and, you know that's why they respond to taurine supplementation if they had this dilated cardiomyopathy so then the last question becomes like do you change your dog's diet right away do you like oh my god what's going on here honestly if your dog has been doing clinically well like they're happy alert otherwise on you know whatever specific type of food even if it contains peas other legumes sweet potato for instance my thought is keep your dog on it. I mean, I've currently got my own little dog, Tula. She's on sort of the second ingredient is peas. And she's doing so clinic well, I'm not about to change it. So my thought is one, like stay on top of this. Two, if, you know, and if anything changes, I'll let you guys know. Three, just be aware of it, but just know it, taking it all in context. I mean, you, you're dealing with 0.001% of dogs um, being affected. You know, you can draw the likelihood example of millions of dogs on NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, having serious, serious side effects of those drugs, and there's not a story on that. So it's got to all just be taking it in context. Now let's get on to the second part of today's podcast. It's about glaucoma or glaucoma in dogs and cats. What is it? It's an eye disease where the pressure within the eye becomes elevated. It can cause significant pain and lead to blindness. Dogs and cats with primary glaucoma, they're believed to have an anatomical or chemical problem that affects how fluids drain from the eye. So the onset can happen all of a sudden or spontaneously. Secondary glaucoma results from another disease process within, within the eye that then causes the pressure to in increase. Glaucoma usually requires lifelong treatment unless you can figure out what the underlying cause is and treat that. So inside there, what's happening, there's a, this certain type of fluid called aqueous humor circulates in the in the chamber. So just in clear part of the eye, the cornea that you're seeing, that's what's going to keep the eye structure is really healthy. And normally it's being produced and then it drains. Think about a drain through an opening or a port through the back part of the eye. And there's this almost like a small sieve. So normal pressure, they're just they're kind of producing fluid. The fluid is draining. You want to keep it at a certain level. When either too much fluid is produced or the drainage is obstructed, the eye pressure increases and you're leading to glaucoma. Glaucoma occurs far more frequently in dogs, 0.675%, than in cats, 0.197%. Primary hereditary breed-related glaucoma is the most commonly seen in purebreed dogs. Cats usually have secondary glaucoma that is associated with chronic inflammation of the iris, uveitis, 
or with tumors inside the eye. Um, primary glaucoma in cats is very rare, but Siamese and Burmese cats may be predisposed. O over 40 different breeds of dogs are predisposed to glaucoma, with some of the common ones being the Cocker Spaniel, Beagle, Basset, Akita, Chow Chow, Samoid, Bouvier, Shih Tzu, and Chinese Sharpay. It can be really painful for pets as this in intraocular eye pressure becomes rapidly elevated. In people, the pain feels like a constant bad headache. So the normal pressure um, in our dogs and cats is somewhere between 10 to 25 millimeters of mercury. Uh, with dogs and cats in glaucoma, the pressure may go up to 30 millimeters of mercury and higher. Values above 50 millimeters of mercury rapidly cause blindness or painful, and they may cause the eye to stretch and enlarge. An affected eye may look normal to a pet owner, when there's mild glaucoma. Some of the early signs, a bloodshot eye, a clouding cornea, a dilated pupil, squinting or holding of the eye closed. And if you're gonna see these clinical signs, I mean, get that your dog or your cat to the veterinarian as soon as possible. Over time, the eye size can increase, it may bulge. Unfortunately, in many of these cases of severe glaucoma, the eye is often permanently blind by the time of diagnosis. You know, and in that case, generally for most dogs, it means, or most cats, it means having that eye removed or an enucleation. So initially, you're gonna go take your dog, your cat into the veterinarian, and they can measure it with a thing called a tonometer. Now, there's now some sort of newer generation ones that make it a little bit easier to be slightly more specific. But regardless, they're gonna actually measure the eye pressure. And based on that, you know, they can, you know, pretty much say your dog, your cat has a glaucoma or not. Um, as far as the prognosis goes, when it just depends on catching it early is ideal. Uh, getting on medication if you can, but unfortunately so many of the animals, especially the dogs that I saw in veterinary practice, by the time I saw them, the eye was already visibly bulging. There had already been often some permanent damage done to the eye, and in many cases, unfortunately, they need to be taken out. Um, but especially the ones we're able to catch early on, we get them on medication, get them referred to a veterinary ophthalmologist, and some of those guys have been treated, um, which was sort of somewhat satisfying. So just, I want you guys to be aware of the clinical signs. You see it, get your dog, your cat into the vet as soon as possible, and hopefully we get them on some early treatment and they respond. Lastly, I wanted to just talk about a new form of treatment. It's being used in people, and it's also been, you know, investigated in our animals. And it's the use of the medical marijuana or cannabis. Studies in both cats and people, this one study has shown demonstrated effectiveness. So this one feline study was done at a group of researchers from the Department of Ophthalmology and Pharmacology at West Virginia Medical Center. They published the study in 1984 involving 50, 55 cats. In the first part of the study, they measured the cat's intraocular pressure, so that's the measure of the eye pressure, one hour before, immediately after, and hourly for intervals for six hours following the, the topical application of cannabidioids. So, and the two they used in particular were one called CBN and CBG. They applied the drops to one eye, measured the IOP of the the eye pressure of both eyes in order to use the other eye as sort of the animal's eye control. So three hours after a single application, the researchers measured a significant reduction in IOP from the baseline value. The second part of the study, they actually gave it, the cats were hooked up to mini pumps to deliver a constant rate infusion of cannabinoids into their eyes. But what they were trying to do, period, is, you know, they're, they're giving this topically in both cases. They saw this dramatic decrease in intraocular eye pressure. Um, which one points to being a real good potential for use in veterinary medicine. A more recent study published in 2006 found that human patients also experience a significant change in IOP two hours after the administration of they're giving sublingual drops containing five milligrams of THC. So just un meaning just under the tongue. 
which would be another really easy way to treat your dog or cat. It said that the eye pressure stayed that way for about three to four hours after administration before returning to baseline. Let's see, they also gave CBD or cannabidiol, which is the one that's non-psychoactive. We're giving to most, you're going to use medical marijuana. That's the main portion you're giving to your dogs and cats. And it was given in the same fashion at 20 and 40 milligram doses. And the trend, the higher dose produced a decrease of IOP four hours after administration. So the big point here is, so they're seeing results. They saw a published study in cats. They saw positive results being an eye drop, which seems such a great way to give it, where you can actually do it. The second hu human study was giving it under the tongue. But the big point is one, those are very applicable to our dogs and cats. Are they being used yet? No, I don't think so. And there's a whole issue around legalities or not, depending on what state or what province you're going to live in. Um, but the fact they saw some pretty positive results is, you know, really good news as far as I'm concerned and something I'd like to keep you guys hooked up on as far as letting you know if anything changes. I'm really excited about the idea of giving it topically, especially CBN, which is there's about seven or 80 different components of the marijuana plant. And some of these, these are the ones that are non-psychoactive. And they could be made into an eye drop and given topically. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Anyway, so I'll let you know if anything changes, but just keep this in mind as another alternative form of treatment. Letting your veterinar veterinarian know if you've got a dog or cat with glaucoma that there's another option. Lastly, let's just talk a little bit about raw food diets, raw food for dogs and cats. I get a ton of questions about them. I'm like, should I feed raw? Should I not feed raw? You know, especially in light of this current FDA investigation. So, you know, for thousands of years, you know, our dogs and cats, that's what they live on. You know, raw meat diets, human dinner scraps. You know, it's only, it wasn't until it were only around 70, 80 years ago we got these commercially prepared kibbles. That's the ones that started growing in popularity, and that's how most dogs and cats are are being fed now. Although recently, the last 10 to 20 years, it's been on the rise. Generally, it's a pretty easy thing to do. Um, so most raw food diets, they're from based from two models. There's the barf diet and the diet. The BARF diet was initiated by Dr. Ian Billinghurst in his attempt to provide pets and wild animals with a better environment to thrive in. So BARF stands for biologically, biologically Appropriate Raw Food or Bones and Raw Food. It includes everything from non-meats to an array of supplements. Uh, Dr. Billinghurst, he's insists that the store-bought pet foods do not offer the same advantages for pets that were offered to their ancestors who dined on raw and wild meat. The prey diet, it, stimulate, it simulates the proportions of an actual prey animal in a pet's diet. The whole prey diet, for example, simulates animal prey by including bone, fur, feathers, scales, muscles, organ, meat, and skin. In this one, there's no supplements in the diet. It assumes that everything that your dog or cat needs is provided by the prey being used. A really simpler, you know, raw diet is largely composed of a wide variety of meats, you know, butcher scraps, bones, etc. Table scraps as supplements. Another more convenient way and where I first started with my first dog hoochie was I just bought this commercially prepared pre-packaged frozen raw. It's really easy. They came in these patties. I'm going to try it again with my little dog Tula just because it's super simple. She's a small dog. It's not near as expensive as trying to feed a big 90 pound lab. Um, but it's easy, just an easy way to start, an easy way for you guys to start if you want to consider it. And it's something I always suggest, even trying with your dogs or cats, even trying once a week. My cat Murray, I mean, he's no longer diabetic because he's just on an animal protein food. But I want to get him on off of some of this canned stuff. There's other issues around canned and toxins that are leached from the lining of the canned food and try him on some of the raw stuff. He loves raw chicken. He just scarfed down a pile of raw fish. I'm not, I think I'm gonna dry him on some more raw too. So what are some of the health benefits some pet owners have seen? You know, shinier hair coat, better, better eliminated dog odor, better body muscle to fat ratios, cleaner teeth, 
um, decreased itching, normalized energy level, improved urinary tract health, better resistance to infections, increased mobility with a decrease in arthritis pain, decreased allergy symptoms, little to no hairballs in cats, and lower stool volume. No question, the number one concern is foodborne illness, such as salmonella and E. coli and the spread of these to people. Other concerns include choking on bones and perforation of the stomach or intestines from bones. You know, feeding raw foods to sick or weakened pets is another concern. In true salmonella and E. coli, they're not well-documented concerns for your pets. The intestinal tracts of dogs and cats are designed for handling and digesting raw meats. When raw food is ingested, the stomach pH is very highly acidic. It makes it really difficult for these bacteria to survive. And then the short digestive tract of a carnivore enables the foods to be digested and ready to go as feces within six hours, often before the bacteria can become a problem. An additional concern is choking on bones and intestinal, intestinal obstruction or perforation. Uh, generally, these events are rare. They're still possible, and I did see this with a couple dogs in veterinary practice. So my big suggestion there was if you're going to feed bones, just chop up really fine. Get yourself a food processor. They're really, really small, chunky little bits that, you know, then can't cause an issue. And that was my sort of most comfortable compromise. And then lastly, the other, another easy way to avoid these issues is just buying one of the commercially prepared raw diets. So they're done for you. But generally, could you just think of it something really simple. When you're going to prepare a raw diet, so you want to do it at home, you know, just some keep some of the basic food groups in mind. Meat, chopped bones, vegetables should, should be large for what you're going to feed your dog or cat, along with organ meats once a week, and that's it. So if you're going to feed your dog a raw food, like what do you want to think about? Here are the four principal raw food groups, meat, bone, organ meats, fruits and vegetables. The easiest way is to feed chicken as a meat and bone source. You can purchase chicken backs and thighs, they're relatively inexpensive. Take them out of the freezer, let them defrost overnight, chop them up in the morning, just throw them into the food processor, which is what I did. Cheeny little small chunks of bone. And, you know, Lewis was happy to scurf that down. If you're looking at your cat, the one big thing is when you're looking at meats, bones, organ meats, just given once a week. Same thing, you can just start with chicken backs and backs and thighs. Just make sure they're really processed really, 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 really well. Just don't want your dog or your cat having an issue with uh, that chopped up piece of bone. Bone or bone meal or, or, or an alternative supplement generally are considered important to be added in with a raw diet. Because many people start out and they're just going to avoid adding any of the bones. So if you do that, you're missing of some of the nutrients within the bone itself. Uh, while meat is the primary ingredient, is a good source of calcium. It's a, so you want to make sure you can add the correct balance of calcium, phosphorus to calcium. So one part phosphorus to two, to two parts calcium. A good example of a correct meat to bone ratio is with chicken necks or backs. If you base your proportion on these samples, you're going to have a pretty good balance. And that's kind of the way. So if you include the bones, you're okay. If not, you just got to make sure you're doing with some extra supplements such as bone mirror and alternate type supplement. Generally, how much do you feed? This really generally varies um, based on your dog, based on your cat. If it's more active, they need more. Obviously less active, need less. As a general guideline, you're feeding about one pound of raw food per 50 pounds of dog. Rapidly growing dogs and active dogs tend to need more. Older dogs and inactive dogs tend to need less. Some of the final thoughts. No question, you know, cooking can destroy some of the vital nutrients in food, including vitamins, minerals, and enzymes. In commercial food, these are added back after processing. But, you know, are these added nutrients as good as what's found in raw food? I mean, it doesn't seem to be so in, for many, many animals, for many of the dogs I used to see in vet practice. I mean, the guys eating raw, generally, were pretty darn healthy. So, you know, take that for what you will. 
I hope that allays some of your fears. I've fed an array of my different animals raw food, never had an issue. So I encourage you to try it. You're super reluctant, just try the prepackaged frozen raw. It's the easiest way to start. Well, thanks again, you guys, for listening to today's podcast. This is Dr. Jones. Any questions or comments, feel free to please send me an email. That's at podcast at veterinarysecrets.com. I'd love to have suggestions for future shows. Keep on listening. Tell your friends. Much appreciated. Dr. Jones, I'll talk to you again next week.